Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Today's show is going to feature an event which is less than 50 years old which makes it quite recent for me. Our event happened in the year 1954, and let me tell you what else was happening that year. On January the 14th, Marilyn Monroe marries baseball player Joe DiMaggio at San Francisco City Hall. On April the 12th, Bill Haley and his Comets record Rock Around the Clock in their first session for American Decca in New York City. It's released on May the 20th as a B-side, but only in 1955 becomes the number one hit, helping to initiate the rock and roll craze. On May the 6th, Roger Bannister runs the first sub-four-minute mile in Oxford, England. On July the 4th, food rationing in Great Britain ends with the lifting of restrictions on sale and purchase of meat, 14 years after it began early in World War II and nearly a decade after the war's end. On September the 17th, William Golding's novel, Lord of the Flies, is published in London. And on November the 13th, Great Britain defeats France to capture the first ever Rugby League World Cup in Paris in front of around 30,000 spectators. But we're interested in the events that started on the morning of the 4th of September in 1954, when the Bristol Britannia registration G-A-L-R-X took off from Filton on a test flight with Captain Arthur John Pegg, nicknamed Bill, aged 47, at the controls. He had also flown the first prototype for the Britannia just before Christmas. The flight engineers for the trip were Ken Fitzgerald and Gareth Jones. Also on board were Dr Archibald E. Russell, chief designer of Bristol Aircraft Division, who actually designed the Britannia, director Stanley G. Hooker, chief engineer of the Bristol Engine Division, and Mr Farns, the Bristol sales manager. This was not just a test flight of the £800,000 plane, 
but also a demonstration for sales purposes. So, also present were two representatives of the Dutch airline KLM, a potential Britannia customer. G. Maloon of KLM was co-pilot for the flight and in total, 13 people were on board altogether. Word of the Week This week's Word of the Week comes all the way from the 50s and it's... Copacetic, which means when everything is alright. For example, don't worry, everything is copacetic. The takeoff itself was uneventful. But seven minutes into the flight, the engine temperature on engine number three, one of the four Bristol Proteus airscrew turbine engines, rose. So it was shut down and once it had cooled sufficiently, it was restarted and the flight continued its journey northwards to Herefordshire. The engine temperature rose again when climbing through 10,000 feet, then suddenly the engine exploded. Shrapnel missed the fuselage, but pierced the engine oil tank, which burst into flames. The fire was so intense they couldn't extinguish it. While Bill Pegg turned the aircraft south for an emergency landing back at Vilton, engine number four was shut down as a precaution. To add to the drama, engines number one and two shut themselves down, turning Britannia into a large glider. It was only the speedy work of the two engineers, Fitzgerald and Jones, that got the two port engines relit, and disaster was averted. With flames engulfing the starboard wing, threatening to penetrate the fuel tanks and Filton still several miles away, Pegg decided to put down on the seven mudflats, the silt and mud of the seven estuary, which is the part of the seven which is exposed when the tide is out. With the flaps and wheels up, and only the two port engines running, the Britannia was expertly belly-landed on the flats near Littleton-on-Severn, not far from the eastern end of the first Severn Bridge, which was built the following decade. The aircraft slid for 400 yards, sending plumes of mud in the air. It ended up facing out from the shore, with one engine ripped from the nacelle, but with little damage elsewhere. Miraculously, the mud managed to put out the flames, which could have ripped through the fuel tanks at any moment. Relieved and shaken, the crew and passengers jumped from the aircraft. Mr Robert Watts, a farm worker from Littleton-on-Severn, witnessed the crash and later said, I heard a loud splice it hit the mud. I ran to the spot and saw Mr Bill Pegg leading the crew off the mud. I ran up to him and said, oh, Congratulations, I'm glad to see you're safe. And he replied, And I'm glad to see you. Locals and workers from the nearby brickworks ran to the scene to help. Fire tenders arrived but were not needed. Although only 150 yards from the shore, the aircraft could not be pulled from the mud before the tide came in. A mesh pathway was laid over the mud and frantic efforts began under blazing floodlights to retrieve any equipment that could be saved, 
aided by men from the RAF and Bristol Aeroplane Company. The fittings were sent to Filton by lorries as they were carried ashore. As the waves continued to break over the wreckage of the plane, debris started to float ashore. One of the first pieces was the plastic nose cone. It was 48 hours before an attempt could be made to pull her to shore, but the sea had taken its toll, and the aircraft was a write-off. An army Churchill tank with winches strained taut in an effort to retrieve the wrecked aircraft pulled the plane inch by inch across the mud as crowds from nearby villages looked on, and some even brought out cups of hot tea for the men working in the freezing February temperatures. As work ended at 10pm on Friday the 5th of February, the Britannia was dragged still further ashore to a grassy marshland covered by water to a depth of a few inches. Not only had the salty water covered the fuselage, damaging the airframe and any equipment remaining on board, but efforts to pull the aircraft to the shore had put extreme stress on the fuselage. From her first flight 43 days earlier, she had achieved only 51 hours and 10 minutes in the air, in 24 flights. With the loss of the aircraft from the flight test program, development of the Britannia was delayed. This was exasperated by the grounding of the first prototype three months later, following a near-disastrous failure of a flap during flight. The Bristol Britannia went on to be one of Britain's most successful airliners with two production lines, one at Filton and one at Belfast, and licenses for Canada Air to build two derivatives, the CL-28 Argus and CL-44 Yukon in Canada. KLM did not place an order for the aircraft. Okay, thanks. News just in. A cowboy is found wandering around the desert and tells the story of how he was looking for help with another cowboy. The other cowboy saw a tree draped in bacon. A bacon tree! We're saved, he declared and runs to the tree to be shot up with bullets. Alas, it was a hambush. Book of the Week Now this week's Book of the Weeks is a saucy little number called Scandals of Classic Hollywood by Anne Helen Peterson. Starting with the original stars of the silent movies and covering everyone from Pickford to Brando, Peterson examined some of Hollywood's most explosive scandals, some that we would consider tame compared to work of today. The real subject is the effect of gossip on movie careers and, the sometimes very heavy-handed, manner in which the Hollywood movie industry from the very beginning tried to make and control the public image of its stars. One teasing quote from the book goes... The fixers would erase all traces of the incident. The police would be paid off, the report would disappear. To the public at large, he continued to be a gallant husband, doting father and responsible citizen, the very paragon of contemporary masculinity. Any whispers of chronic drunkenness would be silenced by well-placed mentions in the gossip columns concerning his commitment to his adoring children and devoted wife. Following the crash, a Bristol Aeroplane Company official said During these flights in the Britannia 2, 
all instrument dials have been automatically filmed, just as they were in the Brabazon, and the records should be helpful. The plane was not insured, and the Ministry of Supply had to bear the loss. It was determined that the explosion of the engine number three was the consequence of the failure of the reduction gear. A pinion at the front of the propeller shaft had been stripped of its teeth. The revolutionary Proteus turboprop engine had a free turbine design, so the reduction gear failure left the propeller turbine unloaded. In this state, it rapidly oversped and eventually disintegrated in an explosion. The fire was caused by shrapnel piercing the engine oil tank and igniting the oil. The reduction gear was later redesigned and installed in subsequent aircraft. The straight teeth on the offending pinion were replaced with helical teeth. The cause of the shutdown of engines number one and two was due to the short circuit caused by a fire. Bits of the aircraft were later used by the Bristol Aero Tech College where apprentices could work on them as part of their training. They were also offered flights on the test flights. And now I thought I'd end our story today by telling you about the great Arthur John Pegg, better known as Bill. Bill was born in Guernsey in 1906 to Sydney and Amelia Pegg. He grew up to become the chief test pilot for the Bristol Aeroplane Company. He had joined the RAF as a boy apprentice at 15, becoming a flight mechanic, and in 1925 he was accepted for training as an NCO pilot with 43 fighter squadron. He quickly became an instructor and in 1931 was given a commission and singled out as a pilot with exceptional ability and posted to the Aircraft and Armament Experimental Establishment, Martlesham, as a test pilot. In 1935, he resigned his commission and joined BAC, becoming Chief Test Pilot, when C.F. Ewins stepped down in 1947. He made the maiden flight of the Bristol Brabazon Mark I on Sunday the 4th of September 1949, alongside Walter Gibb as co-pilot. He also flew the maiden flight of the Bristol 175 Britannia on the 16th of August 1952. He flew over 150 different types, including the American B-36 bombers, as practice before flying the Brabazon. Bill passed away in Western Supermare in 1978. Back in the day facts. And now let's start off with the first fact, which is on the 30th of January in 1790, the first lifeboat, the original, was launched at South Shields in England. Also on the 30th of January in 1969, the Beatles performed together in public for the last time on the roof of Apple Studios in London. On the 31st of January in 1865, the 13th Amendment to the US Constitution was passed by Congress 
decreeing that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Now, if you are listening to the show, you'll have heard of this person. On the 1st of February, 1709, Scottish sailor Alexander Selkirk marooned for four years and four months on the uninhabited island of Mazatierra in the Juan Fernandez chain was rescued. He became the model for the novel Robinson Crusoe by the English writer Daniel Defoe. Blimey, here's someone else from a previous show. On 2nd of February, 1745... Hannah Moore, who was to become a noted philanthropist, writer and social reformer, was born in fishponds. On February the 2nd, before their appearance at Clear Lake, Iowa, Buddy Holly chartered a four-seat Beechcraft Bonanza airplane from Dwyer Flying Service in Mason City, Iowa. For himself, Waylon Jennings and guitarist Tommy Olsop. The idea was to depart following the show at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake and fly to their next venue in Moorhead, Minnesota, via Fargo, North Dakota, allowing them time to rest and launder their clothes and avoid a rigorous bus journey. Immediately after the Clear Lake show, Tommy Allsop agreed to flip a coin for the seat with Richie Valens. Valens called heads and won. He reportedly said... That's the first time I've ever won anything in my life. Waylon Jennings voluntarily gave up his seat to J.P. Richardson, better known as the Big Bopper, who had influenza and complained that the tour bus was too cold and uncomfortable for a man of his size. The pilot, Roger Peterson, took off in inclement weather, even though he was not certified to fly by instruments only. Shortly after 12.55am on February 3rd, 1959, Holly, Valens, Richardson and Peterson were killed instantly when the aircraft crashed into a frozen cornfield five miles northwest of Mason City, Iowa airport shortly after takeoff. Three musicians who were ejected from the fuselage upon impact suffered severe head and chest injuries. Hi, I'm Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit long-time depression sufferer and caffeine fiend. In Not Before Coffee, I talk about everything from books, TV and movies to the more serious topics, like my own personal journey through life, struggling with various mental health issues. But not until I've had at least three mugs of the roasted bean and temporarily sated my long-term addiction. So, if you want to get to know more about me and all the ways I pass my time during the week, not including work, and you fancy the idea of hearing me talk about the things that interest me, new books, old books, TV and movies of all kinds, plus the weird and wonderful of my everyday, and how I got into writing about cars for a living, despite not having a driving license, then tune in to Not Before Coffee. Found where all good podcasts are. So pretty much everywhere. And a huge thanks this week has to go out to Henry Arnold from Bradley State Radio, Sam Vernon from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, and Tony Allen, because these guys really brought the whole show to life. I couldn't do it without these people. (laughs) 
You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.